thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On katetalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk It is 25 minutes to 10 o'clock Friday morning, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist Chris, how are you doing today? I'm in really good shape, and yourself? I'm surviving. I'm surviving on this side of the world. I want to start with some questions that we couldn't get to last week. And Keith has uh, persistently uh, reminded that we haven't asked these questions. I want to start with Keith today. And Keith asks, which type of gases is in lava? And is it more dangerous when it comes into contact with water, especially salt water? It's a question from Keith. Morning, Keith. The answer is that there are lots of gases which are dissolved in magma. When the rock is at a very high temperature inside the Earth, it is a liquid and it is called magma. And at these intense temperatures and pressures, you can force gases which are naturally there into solution. In other words, they will dissolve in the liquid rock. And those gases include carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, sulfur oxides and a whole range of other organic chemicals, oxygen. There's lots of stuff that's going to be there in a big mixture but carbon dioxide is going to be present in large amounts. And as the magma comes to the surface it's degassing because the pressure is dropping. It's rather like you taking the lid off a bottle of fizzy drink. It goes fizz and pop and out comes the gas. And this is because when you take the pressure off, the lid of the fizzy drink bottle is holding the pressure high inside the bottle. As you take the lid off, you reduce the pressure and the gas which is dissolved in the liquid can start to come out. And that's why you see a stream of bubbles. It's the same with magma. As it comes from within the Earth's interior to the surface, the pressure it is feeling from the Earth around it is dropping. This means the force holding those gases in solution within the runny rock are dropping, and that means the gases are going to come out of solution. And that's why you get lots of smoke, and it's why some volcanoes can be what's called explosive. Excuse me. Throat-clearing moment. You'll notice some volcanoes produce a very runny lava, others produce enormous explosions like Mount St Helens and this is because if the if the rock is very runny the gases can actually come out quite easily if the rock is very viscous then when the gases try to ex- to expand and, and evolve out they can't do it so easily and they tend to produce a huge great explosion but it doesn't actually matter what it comes into contact with it's the depressurization that's allowing those gases to evolve that really makes a difference when the rock hits water Further chemical reactions in chemistry can happen and of course you're going to produce a lot of steam and that's going to be expanding at a vast rate and that can can have other problems, especially if you open up a conduit from say the ocean or a lake to a very hot interior of a volcano because what can happen there is if water suddenly rushes in and meets all these hot rocks, it produces enormous amounts of steam very, very quickly, but it's steam that takes up enormous amounts of space because a gas takes up about a thousand times more Mm. space than the liquid. 
And this can also have an explosive effect. So there have certainly been accidents and explosions in the past with uh, volcanoes where water has flooded in from the surrounding Mm. ocean and caused the volcano to blow up. So there's a number of reasons why gases matter in the context of volcanoes. Mm. In, In the battle between cold, cold ocean water and an underwater volcano. Who wins? Doesn't the the water then cool down that that magma that is flowing from, you know, the surface under uh, under the ocean? Yes, but there are several things to consider. As the hot magma comes out, and in the case of the ocean, it's usually at what's called a mid-ocean ridge, because down the middle of the oceans are areas where there is a thin spot in the sea floor and magma is coming up and it is making new seafloor and pushing the stuff at the ridge to the side. So you make seafloor that spreads away towards the continental margins in each direction. But as this stuff comes up, obviously it's at very high temperature, as in a couple of thousand degrees. It Mm. meets cold water at four degrees and the water then tries to cool down the rock. But when you've got something at that temperature, it doesn't instantly lose all of its heat, and nor does it... um, instantly go solid so the rock comes up makes a cushion of very very hot steam adjacent between the margin of the water and the rock and the very high pressure of the water down there is going to hold the steam against the rock surface for a while so the rock that can then continue to come out and move to the side obviously it's going to cool down in the longer term but at the instant at which this stuff is coming out Mm. it is so hot and also you'll get a phenomenon where the outside forms a protective crust which might be a bit more solid but inside it there's still liquid rock so it will continue to to Mm. form tubes as it were evolving away from the source of the magma Mm. ross has called in from thornton good morning ross how are you yeah, great, thank you. And uh, just want to acknowledge uh, Chris Smith um, uh, pushed me into reading a book called Into the Grey Zone when I asked a question about a year ago about the human brain. Um, and I've recently just finished a study by a lady by the name of Christina Hunger who said uh, how Stella had learned to talk, which was a study of how she managed to communicate with her dog. And it's really raised a question for me now, uh, having read both these books, which you, you uh, were advertised actually on Cape Talk, on your program. Um, it all leads me to the question, are animal brains really as far behind in complexity and ability as we might suppose? Mm. The answer is no. We're obviously extremely proud of our own brains and tend to be quite complacent about how good they are and how much better they are than everyone else's. But structurally, if you look in a human brain, you can find pretty much the same thing repeated across nature. But what different animals have different uh, will be the relative sizes of different parts of their brain and how well connected those parts are. And you can get a pretty good idea as to what an animal's good at and what its brain does best by just looking at the relative sizes and the relative connectivity of different brain areas. For instance, if you look at a dog's brain, it doesn't have the same amount of front brain that we do. So dogs are less good at planning ahead than a human would be. But look at the bit that that decodes smell and where a human would devote a third of our brain to decoding what we see. So each of the million or so fibres in each optic nerve goes to the back of the brain and it's a very hungry sense decoding vision. A third of a dog's brain is devoted to smell. 
you can work out where a dog puts most of the emphasis on learning about the world, what's on the end of its nose. So really the structure of brains is the same across nature in terms of the relative parts that make up a working brain, but they differ in how big different parts of them are, how well connected they are, and some animals also go a stage further where they look like they've got a small brain, but if you look at how many nerve cells are packed into a small area, some animals make a compensation for small size by increasing neuronal density. And if you count up the number of nerve cells, this is also a marker or a proxy for computing power. It's like having more transistors in your Pentium chip in your computer or your Intel chip. The more neurons you've got, the more processing you can do. Mm. Some animals have big neurons and they have a big brain to accommodate a lot of them. Some animals have big neurons and a relatively small brain, so in the grand scheme of things, they've got less processing power. But some animals are far smarter than their body and brain size would predict. And when one looks in their brain, you see very high packing densities of nerve cells. They've shrunk their nerve cells down, they get far more in, and so therefore their relative power of their processing is much higher. So size isn't everything, but it also is important. But the relative contribution of the different parts of the brain also do make a difference. Uh, does it have anything to do with, with, with the development of, of the prefrontal lobe, uh, Chris? We, we often talk about the the impulsive nature of of young people when they do uh, very risky things like uh, darting across a busy intersection. And uh, I've read that it's because particularly young people haven't developed that prefrontal cortex of these to be rational. Has has that got to do with, with why particularly young people are far more impulsive? There's probably a range of reasons why behaviour changes as we grow up, but certainly the front part of the brain, the so-called prefrontal cortex, is your executive centre. It's where you take into account your position relative to the world, what you're doing, what the world's doing, but then also you transport yourself forward in time and you put yourself into a position in the future, if I do this, this will happen. If I say this, this person will think the following. It's the ability to put yourself into the future or outside your own body and plan ahead. That sort of thing tends to mature as we get older and your brain isn't fully matured until you're in your mid to late 20s, scientists now realise. The brain architecture continues to change and mature. Connectivity between different parts of the brain continues to strengthen and weaken respectively. And we prune away connections. When we start life as a, as a newborn baby, we have a very dense network of connections all over the brain. The brain's got something like 100 billion nerve cells in it, and each of them is making up to 5,000 connections to other nerve cells. As we grow and learn, rather than just making new connections, what we tend to do is prune away the ones that are less optimal. So we reduce the connectivity of some parts of the brain. And that makes the superhighway of information far more efficient and discreet and specific. But that takes time to do. Mm. And it's fashioned by experience. So you have to learn from your mistakes to a certain extent to to end up with the brain Mm. that then serves you well, hopefully as an adult, for for the rest of your life. Thanks so much for that question, Ross. Uh, Let's go to Ray in Zevenbach. Good morning. Morning, morning. So this question is actually from my grade five daughter. I thought it was an excellent question because I studied some science at some stage, so I can usually answer questions, but this one is a bit tricky. So if light has both a wave and a particle nature, and particles have mass, and mass are influenced by gravity, 
Why is it that when we look at something, the light that comes off it comes straight into our eyes rather than curves towards the earth? That's uh, from a five-year-old, right? Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm not that five-year-old's teacher. But the answer to this, because it, it's confused people for a long time, light behaves as both a particle and a wave. And under certain circumstances, it's convenient to think of it as packets of energy, particles, and we call them photons. In other circumstances, it's convenient to think of it as behaving like a wiggly wave. And different situations fit different interpretations. But light, if it's in the particle form, is regarded as massless. It doesn't have mass. In the same way as if I had an atom or even an electron sitting there, I could measure its mass. We know how much an electron weighs, effectively. We'd, we'd, we know that, that photons are massless. But just because they're massless doesn't mean they don't have momentum. So when a photon hits something, it will give its energy and therefore its momentum to the thing that it's hit. But in the course of, of uh, propagating through space, it's massless. And therefore, it won't fall to the ground if you shine it uh, past past the planet's surface. The exception to this, though, is that if you bend the thing that the light is travelling in, in a straight line, then the light will follow a curved path. Because I can see the next question that the five-year-old is going to come up with is, but what about gravitational lensing? When we look into space, we can see light following a slightly warped trajectory under certain circumstances, and this is because the fabric of space, this entity called space-time, can be bent and it can be bent by massive things. If you put a planet in space, it warps the fabric of space because of gravity. If you put a star in space, it warps the fabric of space even more because the star is more massive. If you have a black hole in space, it bends space-time so much that when the light tries to go in a straight line, actually it curves round into the black hole and never comes out again because space itself is curved. So the light's going in a straight line, but space isn't so the light disappears into the black hole. Or, if it doesn't go into a black hole, but it just gets bent by the black hole, its path is changed. It's because the space it's gone through has changed shape, not the light beam itself. But particles of light, photons, are themselves regarded as massless, and for that reason, they're not going to be subject to the effects of gravity in the sense that you won't see a particle of a photon of light fall to the floor, like you would see, um, say, a tin can, if you let it go, drop to the floor. Thanks so much for that, Ray. I hope that answers your six-year-old's question. Barris, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Tom. Just, just a question in regards to that brain issue. I'm curious to know, is a person born cleverer than another person or they learn to be cleverer as they develop their brain? There are a number of answers to this question and it's really dis- distilled into the line nature versus nurture. Your nature is the genetic hand that you're endowed with by your parents to play. Nurture is the environment in which you grow up. Now, when people have looked into this question, it looks like IQ, which is intelligence quotient, this is our marker for how bright a person is and therefore their reasoning and deductive powers. If we, if we assume many of the flaws of IQ don't exist, if we assume that the IQ is, is, is a good way of thinking about it, about 50% of what we judge to be intelligence is inborn. 
In other words, if you're born of good genetic stock, you've got bright parents. And remember that bright doesn't just mean the ability to sit a maths paper. Uh, a person who, uh, an Aboriginal who survived in the desert for 40,000 years ago in Australia in some of the most harsh conditions known to humankind is clearly a bright person, inventive, capable of, of harnessing tools and, and other measures, reading the environment and so on. So be careful how we interpret the word intelligence. But if you're born of bright stock, you have about 50% of your ultimate intelligence coming from that. But a massive contribution is nurture. It's the environment you grow up in. If you're taught well, loved, cherished, encouraged, supported, and nurtured overall, that gives you the extra 50%. And then there's the other bit of je ne sais quoi, the the hidden bit of, because people always say, well, intelligence isn't everything. You can get very bright, very clever people, but they, they never go anywhere in life. There is also hard work to throw into that as well. Many people do very well in life, not just because they're bright, but because they work really, really hard. And so when you bring all of these factors together, you've got about a 50-50 genetics versus the upbringing you have to give you your intelligence. But your ultimate outcome in life is that plus how hard you work plus a bit of luck too. We are speaking to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Get your calls and your questions coming in. Question for the Naked Scientist. So many of my friends are getting cancer. Is there a cancer pandemic? Are the number of incidents increasing? And if so, why? Thank you. A very poignant question. And the answer is that uh, cancer will affect about one person in every two who's listening to this programme. And actually rates of cancer have climbed in the sense that as we've made the world a safer place, as we've made the uh, world have fewer preventable deaths, especially at a young age, what we've done is to see more deaths caused by old age. And as we get older, our DNA accumulates damage and cancer is a genetic disease. So the longer you live, the higher your risk of getting cancer. And the current stats for countries like the UK, like South Africa, Australia, America, is that about one in every two people will be affected by a cancer at some point in their lives. They won't necessarily die of that cancer. There are many cancers that people die with, not of. But certainly as we live longer, our risk of getting cancer increases. And because the populations of many countries, as living conditions improve, as nutrition improves, as childhood illnesses are reduced and therefore infant mortality falls, the diseases of older age, like cancers, have increased in relative prevalence. And for that reason, it does look Mm. like there is an epidemic of cancer, but we have always died of cancer. And it really is a symptom of uh, affluence and older age living, rather than there being a sudden new thing that's Mm. come along. So so then I think BP's question on the WhatsApp line essentially asks about um, carcinogens that that we may be exposed to. And it asks, um, I have noticed that fresh fruit and vegetables seem to remain fresh for so much longer these days. What is the effect of gases, chemicals and low radiation used to extend the shelf life of these uh, uh, of these foods on our health? That's a message from BP. Hello, BP. Hopefully not the, the oil company. The, <laughs> they're looking for how, how we make our fruits and produce last longer. There's a range of factors to this as well. What we've moved to now with mass distribution of food is a system where food is moved very efficiently. It's stored very efficiently. It's often picked prematurely before it's ripe. And then it's kept in ideal conditions to keep it safe 
to 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 sort of slowly ripen over time and so supermarkets and supply chains and so on are operating all over the world arranging that bananas picked in one country will arrive green in the target country and then by the time they get to the supermarket shelves they're just beginning to go yellow and soften there are other ways to do this with gases that you can you store the things at a certain temperature which we know affects the maturation of the ripening process and the rate at which that happens there are also ways of using gases like ethene to suppress potatoes from sprouting and by changing the ethene levels you can change the way in which potatoes think it's time to start growing so a range of things such as picking harvesting stuff at the right time keeping it under the right temperature right gas and darkness conditions transporting it promptly getting it onto supermarket shelves and then there's the whole what we spray the plants with to reduce things like molds and fungi which rot down foods and accelerate the the the, the decline in their shelf life and and scientists are also looking at ways of using plasma not blood plasma but cold plasma where you basically pass a high electrical discharge through air and it produces a range of reactive species you can put this on fruits and vegetables and it gets rid of the microorganisms that would normally be on the surface and cause the food to degrade and it means it lasts much longer i was interviewing a researcher a couple of years ago at murdoch university in australia and she is making avocados for example have a shelf life of three weeks compared to a few days by using these sorts here's of the techniques. the thing with avocados, they, they take a month to ripen, and they're only, in my experience, they're only ripe for the next two days, and then it's over. That's how long it takes you to eat it, is it? <laughs> well, sort of, yes. <laughs> well, let's go to, I think it's, it's another question that, that, that regards uh, brain development. Let's have a listen. Thank you for the great show. Uh, my name is Irene from Musenberg. I've actually listened to what you said, and I understand when he comments about the dog's concentration is mostly on his nose, so his brain is built with knowledge for smell. But I've also noticed dogs in Sindakma, in Athens, central Athens, that they have learned that to cross the road is dangerous. So the only way they probably colorblind, so they watch the pedestrians who are waiting, and once they start crossing the road, they also cross the road. So that tells me that somehow certain dogs have actually developed certain sections of the brain more than just their nose. Thank you for the great show. Bye. And, and we know the, the, the dogs that can catch the train and some good news stories that come along periodically of a, a dog who catches a bus every day and meets the, the kid at school and then they travel back home together. Your thoughts on that, Chris? Dogs are creatures of habit and they're also capable of learning, especially if they're a Labrador because they have a genetic mutation that means they're pathologically hungry. So they're very easy to train. They will do anything for food, even if they've just eaten. But dogs are creatures of habit, which makes them uh, relatively easy to train. They also are pack animals. They've evolved from wolves or they have an ancestor shared with wolves ten to 30,000 years ago, depending upon what you think. And as a result of that, they have instincts that mean that they get on well as groups. And that means they pay a lot of attention to what other members of their group are doing. 
They're quite good at maths for that reason. Bizarrely, you'd think, well, hang on, dogs are maths. But if you're part of a pack and you need to know if a rival pack or a rival animal can give you a run for your money or if you can give them a run for your money, you've got to be able to size up the opposition, literally as well as metaphorically. So dogs can count. They do something called subitizing. You can work out how how many animals are in the rival pack and whether they're worth fighting off. So dogs aren't stupid. They're pretty good and they're pretty bright and that's why we we have uh, dogs as pets they they work well with us because we become their surrogate pack and the the evidence is you know people have done language studies on dogs dogs are very good part of the brain that's good at recognizing sounds and the the current studies show that dogs can learn hundreds of words and there was a, a very famous example of a border collie called Rico who this is you know a couple of decades ago but Rico had had a vocabulary of hundreds of words and you could say to Rico go and get the x and it would be the name of a toy and he could discriminate all these different sounds and go and get the right toy and many dogs do have these very prolific vocabularies so dogs aren't stupid and uh, you know if you think about how much they enjoy their life if they if they have a loving owner you think well you know it's worth their while evolving in that direction because they have the life of Riley don't they we go out to work we earn the money so that they lay in their box get walks love fuss and food and that's really what matters to them I'm going to get one more quick question in, Chris, from, from Zuki. It is Friday. It is the weekend, so I'm sure we all want to experience what Zuki is experiencing. Uh, but your thoughts very briefly. Good morning, Lester and Dr. Chris. This is Zuki. So I've seen a lot of people in red um, that if you want to keep champagne fizzy, that you dangle a spoon in the bottle. Is this a myth or is it plausible? And if it is plausible or if it works, how? How how does it preserve the fizz? Thank you. Give us some advice for the weekend, Chris. Right, advice for the weekend. It's a myth. Don't do it. Drink the champagne or recork it. Spoons in necks of bottles don't do anything. There's objective evidence for this. But going back to how we started the program about gas dissolved in magma coming out from inside the earth, when you take the pressure off that magma, the gases come out. And I said, if you open a fizzy pop bottle, you take the pressure off that the cap is is keeping on the fluid. So the gas starts to bubble out. A spoon in the neck of the bottle is not going to block the neck. It's not going to keep pressure in the bottle. So the gas dissolved in the fizzy champagne is not going to feel any pressure keeping the gas dissolved. So it's going to come out at the same rate. You can slow the the rate at which it comes out down by keeping the wine cold. So putting it in the fridge because colder fluids will dissolve more gas than warmer fluids. And if you put some kind of stopper in to get the pressure above the liquid up, that will also help to counter the degassing effect. The other alternative is you drink it. Perfect circles in nature. Dr. Chris Smith, he joins us again next Friday, just after 9.30. Have a great weekend. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.